Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed? How completely swept away by terrors? They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and arrogant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. If you have your Bibles open, you might want to keep them open. Um, some of the verses will be up on the screen, uh, but not all of them. Um, I'm Steve. I work as the Estates Minister and the um, Carlton um, Housing Estates. And um, it's a joy to be with you today. I'm preaching on a very special psalm. Uh, you've been um, praying for our camp. Thank you for that. Um, next week you'll hear a little bit more about that. I think Anthony's going to be giving you a, a, um, an update. Um, and I'll be heading off after this uh, the, um, at Uni Church. The update is today. Well, the first uh, verse of this, uh, the first line of this psalm um, could almost have a question mark at the end, or maybe even said with a, a wavering voice, God is good. Is God good, surely? Uh, at the start, this truth is not held with a firm conviction, um, if held at all. But um, thankfully, it changes towards the end. It's kind of, maybe at the start, it's like saying something you, you hope might be true, but you're really fearing that it's not. Surely God is good to Israel. Verse 2 explains the problem. My feet had almost slipped. We might say, I had almost lost my grip. Can you remember a time when your faith was shaken? Might be recently, might be now. 
What would it take to shake your faith? I doubt that there is anyone here who hasn't doubted their faith. And I think most of us would know someone who's not only doubted their faith, but actually uh, given it up because of their doubt. We don't like having doubts. We might even try and protect ourselves and one another from doubts, but actually doubts can strengthen our faith. They show if our faith can really stand up when things get tough. If it's real faith, we kind of actually need doubts to see how real our faith is. Because we need strong faith, not faith that wilts at the first bit of heat. You might say uh, facing a doubt is like lifting weights. The resistance causes our faith muscles to strengthen. But of course, faith isn't just about us building up our faith. Um, Of course, it's about God, the one in whom we put our trust. And our faith grows stronger as we learn more and more how trustworthy he is. So this psalm is about somebody who is, whose faith is being tested. Their, their foot has almost slipped, questioning if God is really good. It might be a question or it might be pointing us towards the conclusion, uh, the incredible conclusion that it finishes with. Uh, so there's a simple outline to the psalms. Um, thanks for keeping up there. Uh, First, um, I normally have three points, and actually this time there really is three points. Um, They all start with the word surely in uh, the passage. Uh, First, verse 1, the problem. Second, um, from verse 13, uh, transition. And then third, uh, the solution. And um, the solution is nice and long. Um, You'll be in in a really good way. Uh, It's a broad outline, and we'll kind of go backwards and forwards a little bit, as I've already done before starting, we've kind of dipped in at, right at the start. So uh, the problem from verse 1, uh, the particular test of faith in verse 73, um, in, in Psalm 73, is about whether God is good, uh, whether God is just. Uh, we've already heard the question in, um, in Hannah's story, uh, why does God let bad things happen to good people? It's a question I think we all ask at times. You only have to watch the news or listen to a friend's story. If God is good, if he's all-powerful, why does he let any bad things happen? Why does he let our loved ones get sick and die? Why does God let people treat us badly in our family, in our friendships, at work? Why does God let Russia invade Ukraine? Why does God let what's going on in Gaza happen? Why does God let our Indigenous people continue to be treated so badly? In Psalm 73, the question is slightly different. It is, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad people get away with their actions, with their evil? It's a justice question. Uh, I lived with my family in Pakistan for 14 years. Uh, When we first left Um, We'd heard that uh, Pakistan had recently been number two on the corruption index, and that was only because, of course, they didn't pay enough money to be number one. Um, Something like 5%, I I forget exactly, it might be 1% or 2% of the people, hold over 90% of the wealth of the country. Uh, When aid comes in, it's quite common for it to 
uh, be diverted to wealthy people. And of course, that's not just Pakistan. We see corruption, injustice. We see um, wealthy, uh, corrupt people with, um, with good lawyers get away with a slap on the wrist. We see it all over the place, don't we? Uh, where this leads to, if we go down that path, is, is in the next section, kind of jumping forward, but then we'll come back. Uh, verse 13 asks, what's the point of being good, of being righteous, of living for God, of suffering, if the wealthy people, if evil people uh, live a good life and we don't? It's getting harder in our society to live as a Christian you might say, if you want to get ahead, if you want to be more successful, then you need to hide your faith, your convictions, compromise your principles. We might say, what's the point of coming to church on a stinking hot day when everyone else is out there having fun? What's the point of saving yourself until marriage when everybody else um, is not doing that and they seem to be quite fine? Verse 3 says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And it continues in verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. And it goes on and on for eight verses describing how the, the, the wicked um, do so well. So what do, what do we do with this when we see that, when we observe it, when we feel it, when it hits us personally? Well, the first point is we take it to God. You see, the Psalms teach us to take our thoughts, our good thoughts and our bad thoughts, our grievances against God, our problems that we have with God, the things we don't understand, the complaints we have, and not to run away from God, but actually to, to bring them to God in prayer. He's not afraid of that, and neither should we be. And the Psalms actually show us how to do it. You might say they ask the hard questions, as in Psalm 73, before we even think of them. They give us examples of how to do it. So when our faith is tested, when we begin to have doubts, we take those doubts to God. We're actually going to put this into practice. We're going to pray some of this psalm. I have a psalm that is written by a, Palestine, a, a, a prayer that's written by a Palestinian Israeli. He shows us how we can take the words and let it express how you're feeling, or in, in his words, how he's feeling. His name is Reverend Johanna. He teaches at Nazareth Evangelical College in Israel. Let some please pray this prayer together with me. O oh Lord, if you are good, then why don't you remove oppression? If you are powerful... Why do you allow iniquity? The righteous are afflicted, while the wicked are at peace. We endure toil and hardship, but the arrogant relax, and their bodies are full of fat. We are clothed with humility, but they put on oppression and iniquity. We become thin as we fast and are hungry, while they fill their cheeks with that they attack heaven and earth with the thoughts of their hearts and the words of their mouth are we following you in vain 
for our lives are full of worry and pain. Amen. The last line um, takes us, is from verse 13 and takes us into our second section, which we've already been reflecting on. And just notice that you might not use those words, but you can, of course, put it in your own words as you pray any of the Psalms. So the question is, are we following God in vain? Are we trying to live a godly life following Jesus for nothing? What do we do with our doubts and questions? Is it okay to doubt? One writer said that doubt is something only a believer can experience. Can you doubt something you don't believe because you've already doubted it? Is it fair and okay to ask the question, what's the point? Is it worth it? Does it work? Well, it is, because ultimately there is a point. It is worth it. It does work. That's God's claim. That's what he's held out to us in the gospel. A solution to the problems in the world, justice that will prevail over injustice. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are of all people to be most pitied. If it's not true, if Jesus didn't defeat death, then Christianity doesn't work. It's not worth it. There is no point. But Paul's telling us there is. Wondering what is the point of our attempts to live godly lives while suffering is a very valid question. Thinking things through, looking at the world around us, asking questions when, do, when things don't make sense, it's okay. That's why God gives us eyes and brains to think. God can cope with our questions. You can't ask a question that God can't answer. In verse 16, he's thinking hard. He's, he's feeling deeply as he, as he tries to understand. Is it okay? It is okay and it's right to be deeply troubled. And then he enters the sanctuary of God, verse 17, in our third section now. What happened when he entered the sanctuary? It doesn't tell us, only that he came to understand. And then we get all these incredible verses. I want to spend a few moments thinking how the sanctuary may have helped him to come to uh, what he comes to understand. When I think about him going into the sanctuary, I think of um, what I often see over at uh, the Carlton Church during in the middle of the week. People will come and knock on the door and they want to go into the church and pray. And you've got all the beautiful stained glass windows and solitary persons sitting there praying. And you might think of what you see on the movies where there's actually, you know, wood pews and little church and maybe the sun coming streaming through this person praying and all of a sudden they're enlightened or they hear a, a sound a, a voice from God well the problem with that view of the sanctuary is churches uh, church buildings hadn't been invented back then uh, or stained glass windows um, but also I think the way that they understood the sanctuary was not a deserted empty building but the place where God meets together with his people, where the people come together 
to meet with God, not alone. So I think the equivalent today is here. This is God's sanctuary where we are meeting together to meet with God. In the sanctuary, he learns about the final destiny of the ungodly. Now, we don't know how he learned that. Was it in a sermon, somebody reading from God's word? Was it in one of the songs that they sung, another psalm? Words from a friend that he spoke to or words in the liturgy that they would have said. And they had all of those things back then. We don't know, but God somehow helped him come to understand. I want us to think, go a little bit deeper into what this experience of meeting God and his people um, helps us to uh, come to some of these things that he understood. Firstly, meeting with God's people reminds us we're not alone in our struggles. We get to see that maybe not everyone is as worried about this as I am. Or there are other people who are more worried about deeper things. Or somebody is going through exactly the same thing as me and they can help me understand how they got through it or we can journey together. It puts our doubts and our struggles in perspective. Meeting with God's people gives us a different peer group to interact with. It seems like this guy's peers actually were the wicked, the ungodly. He's kind of watching them, he's envying them, and he even starts to parrot some of the things they say. Why live a godly life? When we are with God's people, we hear a different story. We see different truths. We discover the lies that we've been fed. We discover it's not true that the godly are unhappy. I hope you were offended before when I said um, other people are out there having fun while we're here in the hot. You know? We're enjoying, I hope, singing and praising God and meeting one another, even though it's hot. The ungodly are not always happy and the godly are not always unhappy. We find joyful and beautiful people among God's people. And, and we find that the joy and peace and happiness we have is not dependent on our lack of suffering or the heat or how rich we are or how famous we are. We don't have to have glossy photos of beautiful people who are wealthy and famous to think that's how we need to be happy. We have a different story here. You will find real live people who can say the words of verse 26, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. Maybe you might not be able to say that, but you will, will be able to find someone who can. As he went into the sanctuary of God, the writer came to realise he was too quick to accuse God. He made generalisations based on his own limited experience. As we come together, our experience is broadened and our narrow th selfish thinking is widened. We get ourselves out of the rut we find ourselves in. Meeting with God's people reminds us of who we are and where we are and when we are. You see, the people of God are not just the people in this building here now. They're all of God's people for all of time. 
people meeting over at Carlton, but people meeting all over Melbourne and all over the world and in different time zones that are when Sunday hasn't even started yet. We celebrate, when we celebrate communion, we remember our communion with all Christians of all time when we say these words in the communion service, bring us with all your people into the joy of your eternal kingdom, there to feast at your table and join in your eternal praise. And then we say, worthy is the lamb that was slain and that one of the songs that we'll sing in heaven. Being with God's people reminds us of eternity. And in verse 17, that is what the psalm um, writer, what he was reminded of. We reminded ourselves as we sung almost there. Our focus is eternal as we practice together now what we will be doing together for eternity. As we remember our place in time, we not only look forward, but we look backwards. As we celebrate communion, we look back to the death of Jesus, don't we? Reminding us that we are members together of the body of Christ. Christ is part of that and we are part of him. And then communion echoed and fulfilled the Passover, looking back even further to God's rescue of his people from Egypt. When we get stuck in the here and now, something that happened yesterday or last week or whatever you're worried about for the coming week, when we feel that the wicked are getting away with it, we don't see justice done, even when we see systemic injustice for generations, we're reminded that there is a bigger story. We're reminded that God rescued his people after they'd been in slavery for 400 years, that they waited for thousands of years for the Messiah, and we look forward to Jesus' return. We remember that God himself came into this world where his people, his nation, were being occupied by the Romans. He was unjustly executed, yet he brought justice for every person for all time. The psalm writer especially remembers what he sees right now is not all that there is. The final destiny of the wicked is not the same as the apparent ease they seem to be having right now. In verse 19, they're suddenly destroyed. Verse 27, they will perish. Justice will be done one day. In short, we're reminded of verse 1. In the bigger perspective, surely God is good. God is just. And now we come to this last beautiful section. And the writer now is speaking directly to God, um, not necessarily in the context of God's people. He now has a, a new perspective. He's come out of his doubt and he's caused him to feel very close and intimate with God. I would expect verse 23 to say, you are with me, but instead it says, I am with you. I am always with you. Now back to God. You hold me by my right hand. Verse 24, you guide me by your counsel. God's counsel or wisdom is what we need, not just what we can come up with with our 
perspective. And afterwards you will take me into glory. The wicked face their judgment in eternity, but the godly will be taken into glory. When our dreams fail, when disaster strikes, when the stock market crashes, when the bushfires or the floods sweep through and destroy our home and everything in their path, what do we have left? Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? We have nothing left but God, our Lord. And it's not just, well, he's the last one standing, so we'll take him. Verse 25, the second part, earth has nothing I desire besides you. There's nothing else we would want. When our hearts, when our desires are rightly oriented, we don't want all that other stuff. We only want God. Everything else fails, dims in comparison. Because anything that is pleasurable, anything that is good or beautiful was made by God. He's the source of all goodness. Why would we go anywhere else? Verse 26, my, heart, my flesh and my heart may fail. We will suffer, we will die one day. But God is the strength of my heart. If what our hearts long after is something that will one day be destroyed... That's a weak heart. God is my portion forever. That's what we want to desire. A portion is like a reward or what you might get from an inheritance or even your wages. Whatever else happens, if I get God, that's enough. God is more than enough. Verse 28, it is good to be near God. God is my refuge. When the storms hit, there will be questions, there will be doubts. But in the end, God is the one who actually controls the storms. Jesus stilled the storms we see in Mark. Where else would you go for refuge? And finally, what I see as a missionary ending I will tell of all your deeds. doesn't say he'll tell the nations, but why not? It's, it's so amazing. Why would you not speak out this great, incredible news? That's the reason why we send missionaries. That's why missionaries offer themselves, their lives that, and their comfort. Why any of us would give things up for God to take this amazing news of all of God's deeds, especially to the ends of the earth and to our friends and neighbours, and that's often hard too. Well, we're going to finish with the rest of the prayer from you, Hannah. Um, I'll, I'll pray this, and, um, and you can follow the words on the screen. Uh, dear Lord, your goodness is not an abstract philosophy. It's a reality that appeared through the shedding of blood. Partial knowledge is a misleading poison. I have seen the light of God. I recognise that you are indeed the Holy Father, full of goodness, the fountain of mercy, the mother who gave birth to compassion, 
You are beauty itself. Why am I focusing my eyes on the ugliness of oppression? You are eternal satisfaction. Why am I lusting for a dish that will only satisfy my soul's hunger for a moment or maybe a day? You are love that bleeds in order to save all humans. You are my portion. Therefore, I shall not seek someone else for the rest of my days. From birth to burial, you are good to all of your creatures. You will always be good to me. I will seek your face today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.